0: Shema. Um, It is called, as we talked about last week, it is called the Shema because that is the first word of the prayer. Shema is the Hebrew word for listen. And that prayer starts by listen. That's the word that starts it. And it it is this prayer that is there and it is lifted up daily by Jews. I would suggest that perhaps it should be lifted up daily by us as well. But it also contains, as we saw last week, what Jesus names as the greatest commandment. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As I've been thinking about who we are as a congregation, as I've been thinking about what our call is, what our mission is in this community, this commandment is one of the things that keeps coming back to me. See, see, we're here, we're in this zip code because God has placed us here. It's easy for us to think that sometimes that all of the big stuff, all of the important stuff happens somewhere else. But God has put us here, this congregation has put us here For a reason. And as we think through it and as we try and discern what that is and live into that call, one of the things that I keep coming back to is this commandment. Now, you heard me say some words, you may have heard me use them once or twice before. I'm sort of test running them, seeing how they work. But as I've been working through this, this is what I've come up with. I have come up with the fact that we are a community that is here to make Fairmont more like the kingdom of God by helping folks be more like Jesus. That's what making disciples is about. Making disciples is helping people become more like Jesus, to grow in Christ-likeness. And brothers and sisters, you and I know that if there were more followers of Jesus out there, if there were more disciples out there, Fairmont would look a whole lot more like the kingdom of God and a whole lot less like it does right now. But I want to be very clear, I'm not criticizing Fairmont on its own. If there were more disciples in Manhattan than there were than there are, it, the Manhattan would more like, look like the kingdom of God. If there were more disciples in Los Angeles, or Washington, D.C., or Atlanta, or Red Springs, those places would look more like the kingdom of God than they do. That's, that's what we're here to. That's the, that's the what. The what for us is to make Fairmont look more like the kingdom of God by helping folks become disciples, to become more like Jesus. But then we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we do this? Because this is a this is a big ask, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this, have you ever heard of a Behag? A beehag is a big, hairy, audacious goal. It's a Behag. I don't know where it came from originally. I'm sure it came originally from some corporate guru who made a lot of money going around telling people how to run a business when they couldn't run, run, run one themselves. But, but the BHAG for us as Christians is to see the place around us become more like Jesus. To see the people around us become more like Jesus. But we always have to ask yourself, how are you going to accomplish that? And the how that we can accomplish that is summed up in six words. It's summed up in these six words. We're to love God. We're to love others. And we're to make disciples. Those, those six words is a distillation and a reflection of the greatest commandment and the Great Commission. There's no way around us. This. This, is, this is how we are to do what we are called to do. There's no way around the fact that these are things that Jesus has called us to do. And so last week, we looked at a passage in Matthew in which Matthew tells us the Pharisees have come to Jesus and they're trying to entrap him. And so they ask him this question of what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus responds. And this week, we're going to look at a a passage from Mark. Where the same question is asked and the same answer is given, but there's a little more context around it and it maybe helps us to see something a little different. And so this morning we are going to be, we're going to to remind ourselves of the Shema by reading in Deuteronomy 6, 6, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and then we're going to flip over to the Gospel of Mark and be in Mark chapter 12. So we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Mark chapter 12. Will you stand with me as we read the Word of God together? Listen, Shema Israel, the Lord, the Yahweh our God, the Yahweh is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your strength. And over to Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 28. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating, and saw that Jesus answered them well, he, the scribe, asked him, Jesus, which command is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all of your understanding, with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared question him any longer. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear God, as we as we open your word this morning, we are reminded of these greatest commandments. We're reminded that, that when you walked among us, that you that you taught. That when you walked among us, you, you were here for us to better see your plan and your work in the world. And so, God, I just pray that as we continue in the study of your word this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. All right, now this is one of those times where I'm going to ask a question, and it is not rhetorical. I want to see, by a raising of the hands, who likes Oreos? Oreos. Or, or as I called them when I was a child, black cookies. As opposed to Nilla wafers. I mean, there were a lot of hands that came up. A lot of us like Oreos. All of us, I think, have like a special way that we eat Oreos. I am definitely that pull them apart, lick the cream out, but not all of it because I got to stick them back together so that I can dunk it in the milk. That's, that's my method. Some of you are complete and total heathens and you just eat them. And I don't know what's wrong with you. You didn't have good influences in your life growing up, Apparently. But there's, but there's something about that, right? There's something about, I mean, I think we all know, I mean, and I don't think it's just the advertisements that told us to do it. There's something about dunking the Oreo in the milk that makes it a little better. Has anybody uh, ever done this themselves or, or maybe had a, a parent or a grandparent who liked to take like, day-old cornbread and come, crumble it up and put it in buttermilk? Granddaddy loved it. I tried it one time. Not my thing. He also liked pickled pig's feet. Also, not my thing. But there's something about that, right? There's something about it. And and so because we've seen these things and we've we've lived these experiences, it's not hard for us to imagine immersing an Oreo in a glass of milk. It's not hard for us to imagine taking a piece of cornbread and crumbling it up and immersing it in buttermilk. We, we've seen people be baptized. We, we, we got to see just a few weeks ago, we got to see four folks baptized on one Sunday morning. It's not hard for us to imagine people being immersed in the waters of baptism. Because we've seen it, and we've experienced it, and we've lived it. But I think sometimes the idea of a person fully immersing themselves into the worship of God is difficult for us to understand or imagine. That's a lot less tangible, isn't it? To think of someone having fully immersed themselves in worship. That's, that's a lot less tangible than an Oreo and a glass of milk. Because if I wanted to, I could this afternoon go home and experience an Oreo getting immersed in a glass of milk. I'd have to pay for it with my Weight Watchers points, but I could experience it. But I think it's hard for us to imagine someone fully immersing themselves in worship because it's not something that we can just go and sometimes make happen on a dime. And sometimes it's not something that we see a lot of. But it's important for us to note that there is not an exception to this expectation. There is not an exception to the expectation of God that we will fully immerse ourselves in worship of Him. God expects a person's entire being... To worship Him. Our love for God is to be total and is to be all-consuming. In Deuteronomy, that's what's being commanded of Israel. Israel is being commanded to love God with her entire whole being. You know, this expression, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, is a favorite one in Deuteronomy. It actually pops up at least eight times in the book of Deuteronomy. Eight, I will say this, eight other times. It shows up in uh, chapter 4, verse 29, chapter 10, verse 12, chapter 11, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 3, chapter 26, verse 16. Uh, and chapter thirty, verses two, verses six, and verses ten. I think this idea that shows that it shows up over and over again can give us some insight into the Hebrew worldview. See, the heart was regarded as the seat of the mind and as well as a whole wide range of emotions. If you ever want to do some really interesting reading, do in, read about how some ancient cultures thought about where various things were located and originated from in the body. And so for the Hebrews, they understood that the heart was the seat of the mind, that, that that's where things originated from. And then there was this idea of, of the soul, and it's a little more difficult for us to define, but it, it seems in this, in this Hebrew thought to refer to the source of life and vitality. So the, the two terms, heart and soul, between them, indicate that a man is to love God with unreserved devotion. There is nothing that is a part of you that should be withheld from God. Now, as we read Deuteronomy, we don't see that might or strength is there in Deuteronomy, but but when Jesus quotes that same passage, Jesus seems to add it. And at some point in the common vernacular of the Jewish and the Hebrew people, this gets added. And as it gets added, it's to, to let us know that it's it's, it's to add emphasis. Because there comes to be this understanding, right, that you've got, you've got heart, mind, and you've got soul, but then we also have physical stuff too. And that that as well is to be devoted to God. We're to devote ourselves wholly to God because God alone is worthy of such devotion. All that He has done, is doing, and will do in the future deserves our entire being. We sing, we give, we serve, and we live as people who know that God is good and worthy of praise. When we think about the ancient world, we think about all of these these foreign gods. Some of them we read about in Scripture and some of them we know because we've learned about Greek mythology or Roman mythology in school. Some of us had to read the Epic of Gilgamesh in school, which is from ancient Mesopotamia, the area that becomes Babylon. And as we read those, we understand that those gods are made in the image of man. These false gods are made in the image of man. They are are very human. Just sometime go back and read Greek mythology and see how Zeus behaves. Zeus does not behave as a perfect and holy God. Zeus behaves as a fairly deviant, very fleshly, given into his appetites, earthly king constantly running around, finding women who are not his wife, quick to anger, fickle. These were This was the understanding of, of the gods before God showed up and called Abraham. And when God shows up and, and calls Abraham, we begin to see this Unique and generous and dependable God. We begin to see what the actual character of God is. And when we see what the character of God is, and when we see that He is generous and dependable, we see that He is worthy of our total allegiance. God has pulled the Israelites out of Egypt, has saved them out of Egypt. And as they are standing on the precipice of going into the promised land, that's where we get the book of Deuteronomy. This promise is about to be fulfilled that the land flowing with milk and honey will be delivered to them. God has made good on His promise. And they are reminded this God deserves everything you have. And so many, many years later, the people of God are under the rule of Rome. And there are all of these religious factions. There are the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes and all of these groups running around. And in the midst of that, this this man comes out of Nazareth to claim that He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One of God. That not only is He the Anointed One of God, that He is God in the flesh. Now, if you are a Jew who has been told your whole life to have no God other than Yahweh and someone comes walking along saying, oh yeah, by the way, that's me, you're going to have some questions. And Jesus got some questions. You know, last week, we saw this passage in Matthew, where Matthew makes a point of saying that the Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus in a question. And this week, Mark is not not clear as to that. In fact, as I read this passage in Mark, I don't feel like that this scribe is trying to trap Jesus at all. I feel like he's got a sincere question. And he comes to him and he asks him that same question that we heard the Pharisees ask last week, which command is the most important? I said this last week, but in case you weren't here, or in case you have forgotten, there are 613 commands in the law of Moses. 613. Man, I've got a hard time remembering to turn the light off. I don't know what I'm going to do with 613 commands. There are a lot of commands. I mean, even if we look at just 10 of them, I don't know, if there were somewhere in the Bible maybe where God had given us 10 commandments, it might be useful. But even if we look at the 10 commandments, we can see that it is almost impossible for us to live, in fact, no, not almost, it is impossible for us to live a life keeping every single one of those commands every single day. And so there's a lot of work being done at the time of Jesus with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of these religious leaders trying to figure out, okay, there's 613 commands. Does God really mean for us to keep all of them? If he means for us to keep all of them, what's the priority? Which ones are most important? Because after all, we live in a broken and fallen world and the likelihood of us being able to keep all 613 is slim. So if we've got to break one, let's make sure that it's one of the not important ones. Well, brothers and sisters, they are all the law of God. They're all important. But this question of what is the greatest keeps coming up. And so they ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all of your strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. This is the summation. Jesus and Matthew, right? Last week we saw that Jesus says this is the summation of the law. There is nothing else that goes into the law. In fact, we talked last week, even the Ten Commandments can be distilled down into these two commands. But we have to ask ourselves, the tone is different here in Mark than it was in Matthew Is this a different event or is this the same event? And the answer to that is, I'm not sure, but. So this is where you're going to get into a little bit of my best educated guess. It's clear in both Matthew and Mark that the events that Matthew records immediately prior to this exchange are the same as the events that Mark records. The events immediately after this exchange in Matthew are the same as they are in Mark. It appears that this is, in fact, the same event. And so what makes them different? I think we have two options. I think the first is, Even though this is all the Word of God, there are still human authors involved. And human authors, when they sit down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are trying to speak to a particular community and a particular set of events. And so I think the emphasis in Matthew is on a different syllable than in Mark. There is also the possibility that there were two events that were very similar to each other, that at some point got conflated and the details got a little mixed up and it's all true and it's all right, but the human author put the the detail in the wrong spot. I'm inclined to think that it's the first one. Matthew wants to make a point that the Pharisees want to trap Jesus. Jesus. Mark is making a point about worship. Because he records the response of the scribe, which is not in Matthew. The response of the scribe changes the tone. The response of the the the, the, the scribe is to say that to do these things, to love God and to love others is quote far more important than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifice. Mark is driving home the point that to get the commands right, to do the will of the Father is more important than the forms of worship. We can get really wrapped up in the forms of worship. We can fight about it. Oh man, we can, we can fight about music what kind of music to have on Sunday morning. We can fight about about dress, how we are or not to be dressed in worship. We can fight over whether or not to have a pulpit. We can fight over whether or not the light should be off or on. We can fight about the time of day that worship is to happen. In fact, sometimes there are even some folks who argue about which day of the week it is that we're to worship God. But all of these things mean nothing if we are not worshiping God by loving him with our whole beings and loving others as well. So We talked about last week, Jesus links these two, loving God and loving others, because it is not possible to love God without loving others. Could you, could you love and respect and honor a person if you despised and mistreated the children that they loved? Our neighbors are God's children. And to love them is to love Him. And we cannot love Him without... Loving them. And the flip side of that is it's not possible for us to truly love each other without the love of God. God is the wellspring from which all true love flows. And so the scribe answers, and this is what the scribe says. He, says. he says, no, these commands are it. You are right to say that God is one. You are right to say that these are the commands, and in fact, they are far more important than all the other stuff that we're arguing about. And Jesus responds, you have answered wisely, and you are not far from the kingdom of God. Why not far? Why not... And you are of the kingdom of God. Because the scribe still has not recognized the authority and person of Jesus. If we are to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then that means that we have to love Jesus. To love Jesus is to submit to him. If Jesus is not a part of our love, then our love for God is incomplete. Jesus is the Son come to show us and live out and die out and rise out the love of God for us. And until we experience that full measure of God's love, we are unable to love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. And we're not able to really love others either. In 1739, Charles Wesley wrote an 18 stanza poem that we are very thankful they only included four stanzas of in the hymnal. And that is what we sang earlier, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. This is is what he writes, reflecting on and celebrating his conversion. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my Redeemer's praise, that I would have a thousand voices that I could raise to give glory and honor to God. The glories of my God and my King and the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all of the earth the honors of your name. Jesus, the name that calms my fears, that bids my sorrows to cease. Tis music in the sinner's ear, it's life and health. And peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Sometimes we sing words and we don't think about them and we don't hear them. These are the words of a man who has encountered Jesus, who has experienced that love, and who wants to give everything to see that love proclaimed. He wants to immerse himself. But he knows that he cannot immerse himself separate and apart from Jesus. There was a a writer that was very popular several years ago. He died a few years ago as well. His name was uh, Brennan Manning. I don't know if any of you recognize that name. Um, He was a a former uh, Franciscan priest who was um, uh, kicked out and became a Protestant. He was an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic, and a writer. He's probably most famous for writing a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, in which he claims that uh, all of us are ragamuffins, which I think is a A way of saying all of us are a little ragged around the edges. He inspired a lot of people. Rich Mullins, um, the singer-songwriter who wrote probably most famously Our God is an Awesome God. Um, His name of his band was the Ragamuffin Band. There also was a, a band that was very popular in the 90s called DC Talk. I don't know if any of you remember DC Talk. DC Talk had a song called, What If I Stumble? And there's an, there's an intro to that that's actually a line from Manning. And they, that intro is, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. But Manning was, was a person that through his own life story and his own life journal wrestled. Wrestled with how to immerse himself in the love of God. As I said, he was a recovering alcoholic. One of his last books was this book entitled The Furious Longing of God. And this is how he described the moment when presented with the powerful love of God. When the night is bad, and my nerves are shattered, and the waves break over the sides, God speaks. God Almighty shares through His Son the depth of His feelings for me. His love flashes into my soul and I'm overtaken by mystery. There are moments of the decisive inbreak of God's fury into my personal life's story. It's then that I face a momentous decision. Shivering in the rags of my 74 years, I have two choices. I can escape below into skepticism and intellectualism, hanging on for dear life. Or with radical amazement, I can stay on deck and boldly stand in surrendered faith to the truth of my belovedness, caught up in the reckless, raging fury that they call the love of God. Our access to that reckless, raging fury of the love of God is only, only, only possible because of Jesus. Our ability to be caught up in that maelstrom, that storm, that hurricane of God's love is only possible because of Jesus. The commandment of God to love God is his call to us to immerse ourselves completely into the person of God as seen in Jesus and to allow ourselves to be loved in return. Loving God with our entire being, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, to love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength is the key to true worship. If we are to love God, then we must figure out what it looks like to love him completely, without reservation, and with our entire being. But it must. It can only start with Jesus. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn 458.